0: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Weinbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague Alexa Tullet. Alexa, how's it going?
1: Hey, Yoel. I'm doing well. How are
0: you? I'm good, but we do have an interloper here today. Um, uh, interloper, do you do you want
2: to say what you're doing here? Ah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's Mickey. I'm here, uh, and it's uh, I wasn't sure which way you were going to go. Without Yoel, were you going to introduce? Like that's that was like my 80% prior, but I was like, which direction is he going to go? Um, anyhow, it's kind of cool to be here. It's I, it's nice to be a guest. It's, well, I, I, wait, you're a
0: guest? <laughs> you're a co-host. We have to talk. <laughs> um, it's great to have you back. Uh, you know, it's been fun without you, but uh, I do need somebody to correct my pronunciation of French, and I'm hoping that you're going to be able to help us out there today, because I've been floundering, man. I'll
2: be honest. <laughs> I'm like I've saved up a lot of like badgering for for this episode, so like that's going to be my my main role today. It's just badgering, not not you, Alexa. You get a free pass. It's just UL who I feel uh, has suffered from my lack of abuse. So, um, oh, thank God! Yeah, Alexa doesn't badger me nearly enough. I find.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that.
0: Yeah, did,
1: maybe I can um, model Mickey today.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's what the listeners want, is more badgering. I think there's been complaints. So, okay, uh, I want to introduce our guest before we go any further. Repeat guest, three-time guest, Paul Bloom, uh, professor of psychology now at the University of Toronto, so my colleague and Mickey's colleague, a professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. Uh, He studies, according to his webpage, how children and adults make sense of the world with special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, Ooh, and art. Um, and uh, he's extremely successful and has won a lot of awards and so on and so forth. And did I mention he's a three-time guest on this podcast?
3: That's so the, that's the biggest, <laughs> his most prestigious
0: of all. award. <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly, a life. My,
3: my CV has that as the first thing, and much bigger font. And then I, I, I
0: should hope so. Yeah, thank you. So, so I I always forget about uh, drinks, and we we need to do that immediately so I don't forget. And Paul, you mentioned off air that. You actually made a special trip to the liquor store in order to to prepare for the show. So please bring it on.
3: I did. So so this podcast and I I am a, a big big fan. Both its earlier incarnation and its newest um, has a very loose definition of what counts as beer. So I think the last time Alexa brought over a milkshake, um, Mickey probably brought marijuana several times. Um, but but and, and and the last time I was on, I went I went for whiskey. But I decided to, to sort of hew to the spirit. Of um, of the podcast, I'm holding this up. It's Jameson, which is a whiskey I enjoy, but it's Stout Edition. So apparently, this whiskey is somehow brewed in beer barrels, making it a sort of a hybrid, a, a Island of Doctor Moreau uh, mix of whiskey and beer. So that's what I'm going to be working on tonight.
0: Right, the whiskey that shouldn't be. Well, it's... we appreciate you hewing to the theme even as you subvert it. Mickey, do you want to go next?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I have, uh, what do I have here? I've got a whitewater brewing company. It's something called High Tide. It's a New England IPA uh, and Galaxy Hops, blah, 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 hops. Uh, The main thing is that 6.9%. So we'll see how things go. Well, well done, sir. Alexa, what kind of milkshake?
1: Uh, (laughs) So I felt extra. I I was like, I thought about, you know, bringing on a sweet tea or something. And then I was like, Oh, no, Mickey's gonna be here. I need to, I need to be more accountable. Um, And so actually, like, in line with the theme of the show, I chose the only beer basically in my fridge. um, That is not a beer that I've had on the show before. Um so I will be suffering for the greater good of originality and also incidentally um a connection with Paul because I'm drinking a coffee oatmeal stout um created by Good People Brewing Company in Birmingham, Alabama.
3: Why is why is that a connection with me?
1: Because you have you brought a stout themed drink. Ah, Paul's already yes. drunk, clearly.
3: Okay, okay, yeah. You have to say everything <laughs> twice. Alexa, use the chat if you're gonna be clever and then just write <laughs> kind of down what you joke
1: is. like, wait, were we ever friends? This
2: is like connecting
1: to the starting
2: No, so I legitimately think Paul is actually drunk right now. I, 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 slightly better in the face than normal. Uh I, Paul, have you pre-drank?
3: I slightly pre-gamed, yes. Yes. I, I I did I did, I did um yeah. I won't be talking much in this podcast, but I will nod. <laughs> go ahead,
0: go ahead. <laughs> we will uh we'll describe your actions for the audience all right, uh, I'll go uh, last uh this is actually also a beer that I found in my fridge. Uh, it's a Kohlschlager, uh blonde, and it is from a localish brewery called l'espace public. How'd I do? did very, very well. <laughs> oh, that's that one is legitimately not what I was expecting because last time you fucking
2: tore me to shreds.
1: Yeah, Mickey, how am I supposed to learn from this? Uh, that's like something I would say.
2: I mean, okay, so the U is a bit strange. Let's that's public, like poo, like poo, like it's. I know that U is hard to pronounce for non-French speakers, but I, I you well, I'm trying to mellow out here, man. So uh, you know, you did well, but I I do want to say one thing before we really get into that to the meat of the the, the, the podcast, and. You well. You have been the standard bearer for beer drinking since I left, and I don't think I'm prouder of anything. Uh, I've got two young children as well, but this is, you know, this is like a highlight achievement right here. You have been drinking consistently. Uh, so not when I was, of course, your co-host, but now you're kind of the standard bearer. So um, Mazeltov, uh, sir. It's like
1: he's celebrating or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Mickey's gone. It's tired of party.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, speaking of, let's crack him open. Theheim. we got a lot to talk about. Um first and foremost, really uh Paul's uh new book which is what is it, your your 10th, your 15th?
3: It is um uh my 6th.
0: Your 6th, which sixth. is you know, still pretty good. Um, but but here's what happened. True story. I was at the gym a little earlier, and I read this article in the New York Times, and I was like, we have to fucking talk about this article. So we we will. We are very enthusiastic to talk about the book. But first, I want to talk about this article because it was just, it was, ah, to a moral psychologist, just so amazing. So first of all, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the article is called, Who's the Bad Art Friend? Um, And it's about a lot of things, but it starts with a story of a woman who donates a kidney. And she does this in this sort of unusual way, which is that it's a non-directed donation, which means she says, I'm willing to give up a kidney just to anybody who needs one. Right. So not like a friend or a family member, just whoever needs a kidney. They get one of mine, which is really an incredibly laudable thing to do. She also sets up a Facebook group about her kidney donation experience, she publishes in that group sort of an open letter to the uh, recipient, whoever he or she might be. Um, she then starts kind of, well, she invites a bunch of her friends, and she's a writer, and these friends are also writers. She invites a bunch of them to the group. When some of her friends don't like engage enough with the group, like don't give her enough props Uh, on Facebook, she follows up with them personally saying, hey, I just happen to notice that you're not really engaging with my content about donating my kidney. And what's up with that? Um, She generally seems to feel that people aren't discussing enough the fact that she's uh, done this incredibly altruistic thing. And by the time I got to the end of that section where the, the article was talking about this stuff, I was like, oh, man, she really seems kind of repulsive in a way. And then I was like, that is a crazy fucking reaction to have. Like, she did give somebody a kidney. Somebody is now alive because she decided to give up a kidney and that is a you know, not a zero-risk procedure and something that, at minimum, you know, it's like a surgery where they have to cut you open. So it's like a huge thing. And so should it matter that she seems to have been sort of attention-seeking about it? Then I was thinking... Well, a couple things. What if you could press a button and magically transform 20% of Americans into the sort of people who would give a stranger a kidney, but then also be kind of annoying and boastful about it? And then I was thinking, well, if those people are out there already, can we do something in order to incentivize them to donate kidneys? So you, you can't pay people, obviously, right? But what if you you know threw them a parade? what if you let them participate in an hour-long TV special that lauded their uh, amazing altruism? And I, you know, I felt a little bit like, well, that seems like a a no-brainer, and at the same time, it feels kind of icky and weird. So I want to know what you guys think about this.
1: Oh, In reaction to your first question um, about would we choose to live in a world where 20% of Americans are donating their kidneys, but... um, but they're also like being annoying and boastful about it. My first reaction was, uh, yes, that would almost like certainly be beneficial to the world, but also I would find those people really annoying. I mean, I have both of those feelings towards the person featured in this article. Um, And then I realized that that would be a really pro-social decision for me to make because I'm making the world a better place, but I'm also exposing myself to more annoying people. Um, So I think I would agree and then I would post about it on Facebook, and expect a lot of praise for my decision.
3: So ultimately, you're the hero of this story.
1: <laughs> the meta-hero. The
3: meta-hero. Right. Meta, meta so it, I mean, this goes back to discussions of virtue signaling, which you guys have had, which I think we all have had. And there's an argument I've heard, which is a bit, which I always struck me as somewhat legitimate, which is, if you're going to do something virtuous, like give away a kidney, sure, you should boast about it. You should boast about it. It has many good things. If you boast about it, people see the praise that's heaped upon you, and that encourages them to do it. It also transmits that this is a good idea. And in some way, you might say the fact that you're getting some credit for it might sully the act. But if it's a good act, and if we're good utilitarians, and we should all be good utilitarians. There's nothing much to complain about here.
0: Yeah, I feel that position is undermined a little bit by, well, the story about this lady who's just so obviously kind of pathetically attention seeking. So it, it it's very clear that the motivation was not unsullied um, and that she's not doing this in a, I assume, well thought through uh, plan to make it more attractive for other people to donate kidneys. And, you know, you could argue she's doing exactly the opposite by making uh, kidney donators look like attention seeking weirdos.
3: She did say at one point that the biggest moment in the whole thing wasn't giving the kidney away. It was passing the psychiatric exam that she had to take. So she was mentally fit enough to give her kidney. And she was like, wow, I spiked that.
0: Like the point at which you're worried about failing the kidney psych exam. Yeah.
2: So uh, some of the themes of the story reminded me of, uh, you know, I I, learned, I remember very little of my Jewish education, but one thing I do remember is, um, you know, the, the ancient uh, philosopher Maimonides from the 12th century, Jewish philosopher, who kind of, he arranged um, pro-social acts along a continuum of virtue. Um, you know, so just giving is virtuous, and that's good and should be encouraged. Um, if you give to someone and, you um, they you know you don't you don't know who you're giving to uh that that's even more virtuous and then if you not only do you not know who you're giving to they don't know who you are either that is the most virtuous um so clearly this person I think she in the end she did end up meeting who she donated to although i don't i don't think that was intentional um but of course she she skipped that part of being completely anonymous um but I think you know as paul mentioned uh in terms of the amount of good she's contributed to the world i mean that's i think far greater than the annoyance and the small amount of, um, uh, uh, let's say suffering that she's added to the world. Uh, but at the same time, I think none of us can help being annoyed by, by people like this. I mean, I see, I think we all probably see people like this who are, um, very pro-social or, uh, and very giving. And we know this cause they tell us, they tell us all the time how pro-social and how giving they are. And I, you know, I can think of a couple of people right in my, on my, in the top of my head were like that. And I do get annoyed by them, but at the same time, yeah, I think, um, Yeah, I'd rather live in a world with with people like that, uh, because I think they are making the world a better place, even if they are annoying.
1: I I will say that I think that there are people who um, do pro-social things and don't advertise them. And if I can just be sort of like uh, extra pessimistic, I think that sometimes the motives there are also self-presentational. So I think many people correctly realize that they will be negatively judged for boasting about their pro-social acts on let's say social media. And as Paul noted, I think there are benefits to boasting. So like you sort of get attention for a cause, you can sort of create social pressure. Um, But I feel like people forego those benefits because they don't want to look like, um, like egotistical jerks. Um, And so they, they refrain from uh, boasting because they know actually that choice will make them look best. Um, So I actually don't think that's always the most like pure um, way of of engaging in pro-social acts.
3: But what people often want to do is occupy this sort of special in-between space. And this was a sweet spot, if you will. Um, and this this was a... this was well done. Par- <laughs> Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my, my publicist says I have to say that once every podcast. Um, but this was actually parodied in the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Ted Danson, playing himself an actor, A donates a hospital wing and it's anonymous. And the thing is, everybody knows he he did it. So he gets credit twice. Once for doing it, but once for being so self-effacing and modest that he puts it down as anonymous, which enrages his status, uh, hungry friend. And Alexa, I think you're right, which is even when things are anonymous, I imagine they're very rarely entirely anonymous. People's families know. Their friends know. Maybe the people they care about most in the world know, and I think then, even then, there's there's a status motivation there. So I am agreeing with you. I I actually have one one question. So
2: we, I think we all agree we get annoyed by people like this, right? Uh, I mean, the, the the person in the story is like kind of baked to perfection, um, but. Why do we get annoyed with them so readily? Why, why does it bother us so much? Uh, like we see them like, oh God, I can't stand that person. Um, and they just said how, you know something really nice or good. Um, so is it because we fall flat in comparison? Is it like our own, revealing our own uh, neuroses and, and things we're worried about ourselves? Or we feel like you know, we should be doing more? Like, so why do we find them so annoying?
3: It Maybe it's shames us. There's, I know a lot of vegetarians. Uh, are vegans who are not shy about the fact that they're vegan or vegetarian. And I'm not. And I feel I should be. And it's hard not to be diminished by these people who are living better moral lives than I am.
0: Yeah, so I think that's definitely part of it. Another part of it is, is just an ostentatious display of a socially valued quality. So you might, in the same way, get irritated by somebody who's boasting about their income or how many homes they own or how big their yacht is, because it just seems so transparently uh, trying to signal status. What's interesting is, like, there's, you know, more acceptable ways, like, in the... uh, curb anecdote you told paul like there, there's sort of an acceptable way to signal it um and it, it's sort. i guess there's sort of a social agreement of like here's how you're allowed to talk about these things and here's what's too much right? so if i'm rich i might be allowed to wear a nice watch but i'm not allowed to boast about uh the size of my bank account
3: and twitter's the ultimate laboratory for this where you know you, you have these endless tweets as people attempt to signal things like you know Oh, my life is so busy. I keep being asked to give so many talks. It's very frustrating and annoying and, and undue labor for me, you know. Because they can't simply tweet, say, oh, "Man, everybody asked me to give a talk." You know, I don't care at all about about h indexes. I mean, mine's absurdly high, but but you know, I know that's not what it's about.
2: What is your h index, Paul? Oh,
3: I, <laughs> I don't. I, it would be unseemly to to say. Uh, to talk about it. I mean, it's it's three or four digits, but. You know. <laughs> Mickey, it's, it's not it's not what matters. It's not, And as somebody who's doing extremely well in citation, I gotta say, it doesn't, it's not what matters. I don't take it that seriously.
2: I like you a little bit less now, Paul. I don't know why.
3: <laughs> no, it's, it's subtle, isn't it? Well, look, yeah, it's okay, really the, subtle. The case where I see this with, with friends on the left and right are pronouns people who announce their pronouns, people who put their pronouns in their Twitter bios or Facebook bios, their Zoom bios. And on the one hand there's a the question of why do people do it? And some people do it for have a reason. And some people don't do it for a reason. But what I see, I don't actually have this. People get pissed off by people who put their pronouns. And it's not because they're transphobes or anything. They just like they they view it as signaling and the signaling annoys them.
1: I've heard someone use the phrase um it seems like a race to woke mountain um which i think i i mean i was very annoyed when this person used this phrase and in general i'm a fan of people putting their pronouns in their uh like uh, whatever on zoom or in their in their uh signatures and i do that um but i think that his phrase captures um the the kind of like phenomenon that you're talking about i think that sometimes that kind of like shaming can um, have like detrimental effects. I mean, it makes people feel like they should be embarrassed for, um, uh, for trying to be more inclusive. And, and I think because it's so socially unacceptable to be, um, to be like boastful about how pro-social you are, I think people are really susceptible to that kind of criticism. The pronouns
0: are a pretty good, like group membership signal. Like, I think I can predict a lot about a person by knowing whether they list their pronouns in their bio, or sorry, I shouldn't say that, if they list their pronouns in their bio, because not listing, I think, is not especially informative. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the pronoun listers, I think you can be pretty confident at drawing some inferences about their politics. And I, I imagine the people who are enraged by it maybe are just like the people who don't like those politics and so who don't like to see that demonstrated.
3: I think so. The obvious thing you'd predict is their politics; they're they're left. They identify themselves with woke causes. But another thing is that they're young. I, you know, I'm, no doubt there's somebody over forty who puts his or her pronouns in there, but I don't see it. You know, it's the opposite of having an AOL account. You know, an immediate signal of age.
1: And what do you think that the um, reason for that is? I mean, maybe it's obvious, but
3: I think I think there are moral fashions. Um, and, and moral fashions happen during peer groups. I, it might be interesting to ask which of these, um, which of these are age dependent, which aren't. So I see people who have, for instance, in the signature, this is more of a Canadian thing. And also I think an Australian thing, uh, in their signature, an acknowledgement of indigenous lands and so on that I find older people do as well. So I don't have a, do you have any idea why some would hit the young and some not?
1: Uh, I guess one simple explanation is that people who are younger likely know more trans people. Yeah. Um, And so, like, it actually functions more usefully in their conversations with people. Um, So, for instance, like, as a teacher in a small class, you can, you know, set the precedent that you're going to start with pronouns, or you can um, assume people's pronouns, or you can, like, yeah, sort of, like, I mean, this is of a, a much worse situation you can sort of like try to profile people and like guess like oh maybe i should ask this person their pronouns Yeah, it's probably um, worse. but this person looks like a bro so i'm not going to ask them or whatever um so like starting out with pronouns seems pretty sensible you know if if you know lots of trans people if you like literally never encounter trans people maybe you don't think it's a big deal
0: so do any of you do pronouns like in a seminar like introduce yourself and say your pronouns?
1: I did that for the first time this semester. Were there any
0: where you were like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that?
1: Um, I'm not sure. Hmm.
0: What about you guys? Based on age, I, I guess we have to guess no, but...
2: It's been a while since I've actually taught a, a seminar. I'll be teaching one in, uh, in the winter. Um, so
3: we'll see what happens. I'm so old, I only use the male pronoun for people. I just <laughs> find it's a useful, it's a useful default. Um,
0: it really solves a lot of problems. It, it, it,
3: it, no, um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have any objection to it. It would feel unnatural to me. Uh, and it doesn't come up because in my seminars, I, I refer to people by their names and I never have any call to use a third person pronoun. I would, I would say, does anybody want to respond to Allison's comment? Or something, or Ben, you seem to be disagreeing with this. So, um, I probably would consciously avoid using pronouns, but it's not difficult for that sort of
4: context.
0: Is there research on whether transgender and non-binary people actually appreciate this? Because I can see it going both ways. I, I can see like yeah. that you don't actually want attention drawn to that.
1: I guess, like, so one of the reasons for um, making it more ubiquitous that people include their pronouns, I think is like sort of similar to people's use of partner, right? So that like, if if people generally use partner, um, then you can no longer like use that to make assumptions about gender and things like that. Um, And so if people generally use, like indicate their pronouns, then you don't like automatically assume that if somebody indicates their pronouns there, you don't assume anything about whether they're trans or not. Yeah, honestly, that's a weird
0: one to me. Because the the argument for partner suggests that there's something wrong with having a same sex partner, right? Like why 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 would that be
1: scandalous information of, that you don't want to Of course, out there? right? But right. but if you're if you're talking about like conversations about outing, um, an ideal world, nobody's worried about being outed. Um, but of course some people are worried about being outed.
0: Yeah, it's just in the spaces where you convince people to use the word partner instead of husband or wife, there's nobody who's going to be offended or upset by the partner being a same-sex partner, right?
3: Yeah, right. And a different solution, which wouldn't apply to the outside world where the rules are different, both in academia, is just use they for everybody.
0: Yeah, I find that so awkward. You know, so the SHRC, uh sorry, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council is a Canadian funding body their guidelines for writing uh, recommendation letters now suggest that you use the singular they. So Susie is an amazing researcher. They have 10 first author papers in psych science. And I find that so awkward. Like, I think it's fine. It, it, It sounds fine to me. This isn't a moral judgment. I'm just saying, like, you know, my aesthetic reaction or whatever. If you use they for somebody where their gender is unknown or unimportant... Oh yeah, a student wanted to talk to me after class. They were curious about whatever, right? Yeah. But when I'm talking about a specific person whose gender is known and is it's almost always encoded in their name, it's so weird to me to use the they, and it just feels super distracting.
3: And just by the way, raising it itself might misgender people. I can imagine some people would not want to be referred to by they. They the, those individuals are very identify themselves explicitly as male or female and want that acknowledged.
0: I'm very invested in my masculinity, as longtime listeners uh, can can assure you, and I would be enraged. I would I would flip out and start breaking shit if that wasn't <laughs>
2: acknowledged. You know, I've actually I've actually been using they in the the Pearl they for for a really long time just because I I I hated alternating between he and she. So just like just keep it like on like ambiguous and and but I, I so I totally am at ease with that. Uh, I find it a bit more confusing when it's they and then singular they.
3: Um, it's ter- it's it's terrible writing and in, in the real world it's terrible. People are not accustomed to it. Um, there's issues of what sort of a number to match it. You don't want to sound like Cookie Monster. You know they is hungry, but but the plural sounds weird too.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think conventions like that change pretty quickly. I think you get used to it.
3: It's, it's an interesting psycholinguistic question. I will to the death say introducing new pronouns is a disaster. You'll try it over and over again and, and it fails. Z and Z and everything. Even Ms has this dramatic attempt from like decades ago largely fails. It's just it's very hard to introduce new close class terms. The co-opting of they is an open question. Whether that could be, back work.
0: So it's now APA style that you are allowed to use singular they, um, like in the case where gender is unknown or doesn't matter. So if the participant was confused, they were walked through the procedure again, and I think that's great. Like I'm perfectly happy with that.
3: Can you imagine what a life, what a life, what a life it is doing APA style? Like, like you you die and there's St. Peter. And he says, "What have you done with your life?" I, said, I try to, to really mandate the rules for when people publish in our set of journals.
0: Yeah, where does that actually do you know who sets these rules? I, I actually have no idea where these come from.:
3: I don't know.: I think it involves the Vatican. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a conspiracy theory. If we're gonna, since, since we're talking about this, by the way, I have a point about trigger warning. So, because you know, apparently, we're not talking about my book. That's okay. <laughs> no, no, we're just um, trying to
0: get you canceled. Let's just get it out but, there.
3: But there was an article in The New Yorker, and, and The New Yorker is doing some interesting, going over data suggesting that trigger warnings uh, don't, aren't actually good for people. They, they, um, and in fact, they may actually have negative effects in some cases. But my take on it, and I want to bounce it off you guys, is I'm actually in favor of trigger warnings in most cases, not silly cases, because it seems like a basic form of politeness. If I have a bunch of people, particularly a captive audience, I'm going to say something that's going to be offensive, you know, talk about rape or cannibalism, which is shocking, and I'm going to show a video or something. It seems like perfectly good manners to tell people ahead of time, hey, guys, this is what I plan to do. And so I don't mind trigger warnings in the classroom. I don't mind trigger warnings for HBO. You know, the show comes up and it says, you know, violence, nudity, drug use. You know, so I turn it off because I don't want to see that. And, <laughs> and it's good to know. So isn't there a politeness argument for trigger warnings? It, Scott Alexander said there's a libertarian argument, which is treat these treat people as in some way consumers and make them informed.
0: So I, I've read about this research purporting to show that there's negative effects. Um, my feeling is it really matters how you do it. So I can see a trigger warning that really emphasizes to people, now, some of you may have had traumatic, terrible experiences. Therefore, you are extremely fragile and you can be expected to be re-traumatized by even the slightest reminder of that experience. A trigger warning like that, yeah, I can see how that might actually make people worse off. Something like what you're saying, like, hey, just a heads up, we're going to see some gory images in a minute. I I think that's a hundred percent fine, and it's like you said, it's just polite.
3: Maybe even you know I'm going to tell you when it's coming. You might want to turn your eyes. What's What's wrong with that?
2: I have a thesis as to why trigger warnings uh, might not be great, um, and it might act as a good segue to actually talk about your book, Paul. Oh, thank and you. And that is that we we are depriving people of suffering, and and suffering is meaningful and good, isn't it?
3: That's a very good segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, that's a very good segue.
2: Wow, it's almost like you've podcasted before me. <laughs> I mean, th- to be honest, what I what I really want to do is list like five more culture war topics that I think we should like talk about and and like make sure we definitely get canceled for. Uh, but I also think probably best to talk about suffering and, and why it might generate meaning, um, and you know really get get to your book, which I don't even think we've even named. So it's the the sweet spot, the pleasure of suffering, and the search for meaning. Um, so, uh,
3: when we, when you guys put the podcast up, can you start it now? Could you just, kind
0: of <laughs> no deal, sir. No, no deal. No. <laughs> yeah. All other guests, we <laughs> offer them, you know, the, <laughs> the, the chance to suggest edits, but you got, you got nothing like that. Like Sorry.
3: It. Um, yeah. So I wrote a book, um, uh, and it's about the pleasures of suffering and how suffering, uh, gives meaning to life. And it actually, it, it connects with some issues that, that you've t- talked about on your podcast. There was a paper that came out after my book went to press, uh, arguing about the importance of diverse experiences. Um, it was by Oishi and um, you two had an episode. Westgate. Pardon me? Yeah. Westgate, yeah. that's Oishi right. Oishi
0: and Westgate. That's yeah. right. It was a
3: very interesting paper. Um, so I, I, I argue in my book uh, that chosen suffering is of tremendous value. But to bring it to what Mickey said, one argument I make in the book, which is much more skeptical, is I'm very skeptical about the idea that unchosen suffering makes us better. And, you know, there are people who say this. There's talk about post-traumatic growth. There's talking about increases mm-hmm. in altruism and meaning. There's a study or two saying that if your life is too cloistered, you may be less kind. Your pain tolerance might be less. But for the most part, I think here, common sense is correct. Bad experiences are bad for you. So, you know, I do not go into um I don't think we should go into our classrooms thinking, well, if we make our students suffer, that in itself would be good for them. Take that, Mickey. So much for you <laughs> Take so much for your pedagogical plan of, <laughs> of humiliation as a way to strengthen students.
2: But actually it's kind of interesting the way you phrase it because um and, and, and I, I think I agree, but isn't it the case that a lot of instructors, like old school teachers, for example? So, you know, my, my kids are now in, 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 in just starting high school and they got like some old school like, teachers from France who are like strict and uh, not always so nice, um, which is not great. I don't like the not nice part. But isn't there this intuition that like we want our, we don't want them to suffer. We never use the word suffer, but we want them to work hard. We want, and, and working hard is, is, is not fun. At times, and reading that really, really dry book that's brilliant, but you got to really push through it is is good for you. Um, so, isn't there that kind of flavor? If it's if it's if it's too easy, uh, it won't be as good.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I have a, a chapter in my book on uh, the pleasures of effort and flow. And actually, Mickey, as you know, I, I draw upon your work a lot. You have know, this wonderful uh, series of papers arguing that effort is typically averse and we typically don't want to work too hard except when we do there's all these cases where effort brings satisfaction and joy and we seek it out and but getting in a state where you're working hard you're training for a marathon you're writing a book you're you're in this intensive flow state it's tough to get into and it's a lot easier to sit in your ass and watch netflix or play with the ipad or goof around and I agree with you. I think what a good teacher often does is train students, a good parent too, train students to take on difficult projects with the idea of saying, look, this is really tough to do, but once you're into this, you're going to find this much more rewarding than anything else. And so I think sometimes students, children at least need to push for that.
0: So, so far, I feel like you guys have been talking about suffering in the service of attaining some goal. Like, I don't like this, but... Uh having this tough instructor is going to make me better in the long run. Or I don't know, I hate running, but it makes me healthier. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of interesting questions there. But to me, the more interesting question is what about suffering that's actually pleasurable? So suffering that you kind of like for its own sake, right? So you 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 have this term pleasurable suffering, which seems yeah. kind of crazy. And maybe um is uh is a little more consistent with your you know reputation for uh contrarian takes than uh bad things are bad uh so maybe you can tell us about that a little bit like what is that and uh why is it less crazy than it might sound
3: so i have i have two separate takes in the book um and and i agree with you the fact that we suffer in order to get goals you know we wake up in the middle of the night to feed a baby we uh we go to a doctor, don't you know, feel like, you know, that's obvious. That's every hedonist understands we suffer in order to, you know, to get greater pleasure. But there's two claims running through the book. I originally wrote the book because I was interested in exactly what you're talking about. Why do we sometimes get pleasure from suffering? Just low level pleasure. Why do people like going for a hard run or seeing a movie that makes them gag or cry? You know, they don't see a movie, a horror movie, and say, oh, my God, what a horrible mistake. You know, I should have never seen it. I didn't know it was scary. But I love it because it's scary. Um, why do people engage in sadomasochistic sex? Why do people take hot baths, really hot baths? And so those were the puzzles that really interested me. And here my guru is Paul Rosen, who, um, who, who had thought deeply about it and, um, and coined the term benign masochism. And the first half of my book explores that and that has all sorts of theories I, I, I don't think there's a single answer. I think sometimes we, we get pleasure from suffering because of its signaling functions which we talked about before. Sometimes I think it's contrast where we might mm-hmm. undergo a lot of really bad stuff because when when it stops it feels so good. Sometimes I think it's a sort of escape from the self. and, so it, and I think some sexual masochism is well explained this way. it's a way of sort of getting into another, another an altered mind state in a way. So I talk about that. Um, but then, and that was what the book was going to be about. I, I was the book was going to be called the pleasures of suffering and be done with it. But then as I did this, there were all sorts of things I, I, I started thinking about that don't fit the paradigm, the choice to have kids or go to war or seek out difficult projects. or well, I don't know, start a podcast. Um, it's just involves suffering and pain And it doesn't in the end give rise to pleasure in a simple sense, but people think it's part of a life well lived. So in the second part of the book, I argue that suffering isn't merely the cost we pay for other things, rather sort of part and parcel for what we see as a good life. And so I argue that in the first part, suffering's relevant to meaning, but sorry, to pleasure. In the second part, I argue suffering's relevant to meaning and purpose and and a life well lived. And that's the argument of
2: the book. I wonder if I could follow up real quick with that. Um, so, I mean, I, I buy your argument, but I, I why? Right? So Viktor Frankl, you know... By, by an objective account, had a horrible life. I mean, at least his early life. He, he, you know, he uh, was in a concentration camp. Uh, I believe his wife uh, was murdered. Um, and he found some way to, like, rationalize what happened. And, and, and he ended up, you know, being very productive and, and, and you know, producing lots of, lots of good research, et cetera. So he had a you know, good life at the end. Uh, but was his life more meaningful because of that suffering or what if, you know, we had a you know counterfactual what Victor Frankel, you know, lived wasn't wasn't in Europe, but was in the US and didn't have to didn't have to go through that that you know terrible ordeal. Um would his life be less meaningful uh because because he didn't suffer?
1: my interpretation of Frankel's book was not and, and I mean the question still stands and I'm I'm curious about your takes on it, but um was not that he was saying that suffering brought him meaning it's been a while since i read this and i read this at your recommendation mickey so it was like in grad school um but that meaning can help you survive through suffering um so my takeaway from that book was like that he got so much meaning from his relationships with people and from his love of his wife and things like that that he was able to withstand like terrible suffering um but like I said, it's a long time ago, and maybe maybe there were other themes of like the suffering contributing to the meaning.
3: That, that's closest to my answer. So, Mickey, it's a, it's a good question. And, so, and people would give you different answers to this. But my answer, again, here is going to be boring. Frankel's life would have been better, and no matter how you slice it, if he didn't go, end up in Auschwitz and in Dachau. If, if his career wasn't destroyed, if his parents, his wife, I think his brother, weren't brutally murdered. That's just bad shit. And and there's, you know, and people could try to make good out of it. And I'm not saying it's impossible. But it's like sometimes somebody gets hit by a car. You could all tell a story of, oh, as a result of this, he gets in better shape and whatever. But the truth is getting hit by a car is bad. And psychological trauma is bad. So that's not what I'm saying. And it's important to pull that apart. But what I am saying is a good life, and Frankel himself had this good life. And, as Alexa said, this was Frankel's claim involves long term projects meaning for frankel like like Freud, actually, he tend to talk in terms of love and work where a long term romantic relationship uh a long term project. but if you seek out these long term goals, these difficult struggles, they will come with suffering it's just it's just um almost a law of nature that, that, that anything worthwhile will be hard. It, it's true for everything, like the mundane things that we do, like write papers or start podcasts or write books. Um, and it's true also for, for raising children and, and for being in, in love. Um, there's always the risk of loss. And even when you don't have loss, I mean, having children, having having a partner, even having friends, it's by by throwing your hat in the ring, you're going to suffer. And the suggestion that Frankel makes, and that a lot of other people make, is um, maybe suffering isn't good in and of itself, but it's a necessary uh, correlate of things that really do value, that do matter. Does that answer your question, Mickey?
2: I, I mean, I think it does, um, but I'm not I'm not satisfied yet. <laughs> good. Uh, and the reason I'm not satisfied is that if i understood you correctly it seems like what you're saying is that the good things in life you know are hard to reach right so you know the, the you know there is a correlation between suffering and reward um that's because you know to get that good stuff i mean not for everybody of course but for 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 most of us uh, to get that good stuff you have to work really hard and working hard can you know ha- you know entail some sort of suffering um But is it, so in other words, I guess my question is, is it that, um, is the suffering at all necessary, uh, or is it just that to get the good stuff you need to suffer or to try or to work, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to replace with suffering there?
3: I think it's a great question. And I, I could kind of duck it by saying that I think there are times where we really seek out the suffering. There's a certain sense of mastery, which just involves by definition, um, suffering, and then and then conquering it. You know, C.S. Lewis, who we talked about before, talked about fasting. And fasting is very different from someone takes their fruit, your food away from you. Fasting is when you choose not to eat, and there's sort of a sense of pride and satisfaction in fasting. Um, I think it's an intrinsic part of scary movies and, and thrillers and tragedies that you suffer. So some cases, suffering itself is necessary. You can't do without it. But I would actually agree with you more generally. And maybe you think this is sort of a, 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 something which, in the end, you don't want to buy, buy into. But, but I think we, we are wired up through culture, through evolution, through whatever, to seek meaning, to seek sustained relationships, and so on. And these inevitably come with suffering. But it's not the suffering we seek out. Training for a marathon. I trained for a marathon many years ago. and It involved a lot of suffering because I'm horribly out of shape. And I didn't do it because I wanted to suffer. But if I didn't suffer, there'd be no point to it. Nobody nobody plays the game and wants to lose. But if you can't lose and you can't worry about losing, the game loses all satisfaction. I
2: mean, so I, the idea here is like, uh, could you, w- what would you prefer? Uh, actually training and running the marathon, including all the suffering and pain or, you know, skip that part of your life and just get to the literally the last five seconds of of running the race. Um, I suspect
3: most people would, would, would choose the former. I suspect that too. This goes down to, um, to Nozick's experience machine and other sort Mm -hmm. of philosophical examples. But most people I think want to don't want to just have an experience. They want to actually do the thing and they want to work towards it. um, I am my so so um, my partner and I I'm using the term partner my partner and I um, uh, went to see Avengers Endgame and um, and and which is very good by the way and before there's this commercial and I'm sort of eating you know eating at the NAMS watching commercial and and there's a people walking down the beach and then like a voice comes in Um, imagine a dream and a story and I'm saying what the hell is this because it's an amazing parable and it's an ad for Scotia Bank or something. I, and I, so I go home and I Google it. And it's this, it's a story by Alan Watts. And I'm telling it to you, Mickey, because it's your story. It's the story that you start out with, which is Alan Watts says, Imagine you you're sleeping and you're in a lucid dream. You can live whatever life you want. He said, Wouldn't you choose to have fun? Wouldn't you choose to have pleasure, have every every romantic thing you'd want, every victory? And suppose you live a life of 85 years in that dream. And you wake up. You have your day, then you go to sleep again, and you have the same opportunity. Maybe you do it again. But at some point, you would say to yourself, it's too easy. Let's throw a challenge in. Let's throw an obstacle. And for it to be an obstacle, um, you, you can't always you can't be confident you're going to surmount it. It doesn't count. And you would throw more and more obstacles, more and more troubles, anxieties, difficulties. And in the end, perhaps you, know, you should consider, maybe this is the life you're living now. And I find it very moving and kind of right.
0: Paul, you brought up the experience machine uh, a minute ago. Can, can you just say the thought experiment?
3: Yes, famous thought experiment by, by um, Robert Nozick in his book, Anarchy, State, U- and Utopia. He imagines a machine where if you plug yourself into the machine, you will spend the rest of your life plugged in there till you die a natural death. And you will imagine. Living an amazing life, a life of accomplishment and glory, and sex and love and everything of value you could imagine, you will live that perfect life, experience that perfect life. Though in reality, of course, it's a the Matrix is another example is you're just plugged into the machine, kind of rotting, and um, and and uh, no success. Well, nobody would want to be in that machine. You know, everybody wants to live a life. Nobody wants to be a meaningless blob, and he took this as a refutation of hedonism. And I like this; I think it's a good refutation of hedonism. Having said that, not everybody has the same intuition regarding the experienced machine, and maybe when I'm done with this, I, I could ask the three of you what, what you think. Um, I love this uh, this Twitter dialogue. I quote it uh, from this, where you know it begins by saying, "Nozick says I have this machine that could give you any satisfaction in the world," and the guy says, "Well, strap me in." And then Nozick says, but you don't understand it. It's not genuine. And the guy responds, bye, nerd. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Philippe de Brigarde argued that, that more people would do the machine than you would think. There tends to be um, a status quo bias. So right now you're living on Earth in a real world. And then suddenly you wake up in a room and you're told, um, and, you know, we'll flip it now. You wake up and you're told, you've been an experienced machine. Do you want to go back in? And now that's kind of different. So maybe we don't want to go into the experience machine just because we're risk averse and we're in a world as to this. But in any case, the fact that some people like me, and I'm curious about the three of you, wouldn't plug into the experience machine. I want to have relationships and projects, not just think I do, suggests that we aren't pure hedonists. We don't just want pleasure, we want to make a real difference. So who wants to go first and answer the experience machine question?
0: I'm I'm happy to go first. So I really like that you included this status quo bias mm-hmm. uh, confound because I, I knew the experience machine thought experiment. I didn't know this critique and it really resonated with me. So like I, I do this in my uh, classes sometimes. I'm like, who would sign up for the machine? And there's always a couple like enthusiasts who are like, yeah, plug me in. But most people are like, no, absolutely not. And that's my intuition too. Um, I don't want the fake thing. I want real life. But now I imagine yeah. they wake me up and it's like, you're not, you know, UL Inbar, somewhat successful uh, academic. You're actually, Arguable. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> some, <laughs> you're some schmo and you're uglier and less healthy and poorer and less successful and all of these things. And uh, and now should we plug you back in and we'll erase your memory of having been woken up? Uh, I feel conflicted. Yeah. I, it definitely, like, I feel the pull of like, well, no, I I want what I'm used to. So I think that you you don't, Alexa, you don't buy that?
1: No, I mean, I guess I'm just not sure that it uh, weakens it as a critique of hedonism. So I have the same intuitions as you, Yoel. Like, I wouldn't want to go into the experience machine if it's like, maybe I'm not fully understanding the status quo, like flip scenario. But in the classic experiment, I wouldn't want to go into the machine. I want to stay in the real world and like, you know, in my life, that's full of suffering. Um, but in the flip, so if you flip it and you say like, okay, you, you wake up in a, in a room and somebody says like, okay, you've been in an experience machine. Um, you can now be in real life. Even if they told me that real life would be more pleasant than my experience in the mix, the experience machine, I think I would still want to be in the experience machine because like, I don't know. I mean, my fake relationships with the people that I love seem better than like starting over or something. Like I'm going to lose my relation, my fake relationships with my parents and my, like my partner. And like, so in that case, I would still choose, I would choose a fake world over a more pleasurable
3: real world. That's a great response. That's a great response because I would, I would too. If, If I was, if people say they, you know, I'd say, Oh, I want to go back to my son's. And my partner and then the person you realize no such people exist these are just just neural fizzlings and we can give you a much happier life here i would like say plug me back in and wipe out the memory of this fucking conversation
2: <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um doesn't the the ubiquity now or maybe not quite ubiquity but but you know the The fact that like you know v r is so popular yeah. now um doesn't that argue that people are perfectly willing to live in these simulated worlds i mean I, obviously they're very they're just they're constrained they're just for small little things but but people get lots of enjoyment there's like there's now like hangout rooms in these v r spaces where I imagine some people are foregoing real interactions to hang out with their you know- av- the avatars of other people um, that's
3: that's a bit complicated though. That's I Well, first thing, the VR thing right now is sort of limited. The question is, would it expand to one's full life? But if, if if you're in VR and imagine you're having a romantic assignation with somebody else who's also in VR, I think that's real. No less real than our conversation is a real one.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's but, true. But Mickey,
3: you, your point is right. Forget about VR. Think about heroin. Like, there are a lot of people who um, who want to blot out their lives because they get tremendous pleasure from chemicals and certainly if i was in a maximum security prison even a minimum security prison and robert nozick walked by his machine you know i'd I'd scream plug me in plug me in so we are all speaking from a a a a position of privilege where our lives are good enough that we could say we'll trade off meaning and relationships to pleasure
4: i hurt myself
0: welcome back this is the part of the show where i tell you how to contact us so we're on twitter at four beers pod uh that uh you can at mention us you can dm us i check that account i know mickey still checks that account as well if you'd rather email us the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com uh that will go to the three of us uh, finally our website is com, where you can listen to any of our episodes drop us a line there as well if you like if you're enjoying the show, our request is that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice because it helps other people discover the show. Uh, let's see. Anything I've left out, Mickey or Alexa? Sounds good. Or I guess Paul. You oh, you're fine. I've left anything out. <laughs> I'm good. Oh, thank you. Um, let's see. Let's do a quick round of what are we drinking? Paul, are you still on the podcast? Uh, I, I am themed. still
3: on the Jameson and it is excellent. Um, I don't know why my face is beat red. I'm just glad this is just coming out in audio.
2: Likely excuse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mickey, what about you? Uh, so, what do I got here? I got something totally new. I've never even heard of these people before. This is uh, Hop Valley Brewing Company. It's something called Bubble Stash IPA. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I picked this up, but I, I, I have it, and we'll tr- check it out. Mystery beer, my favorite. Alexa, what about you? Um, on the
1: theme of getting rid of the the gross alcohol in my fridge, I have a glass of Gallo Family Pink Moscato. <laughs> oh my god, what even is? it? <laughs> it looks terrible. That's It's very pink. It's almost <laughs> as pink as Paul's face.
4: That's
3: very pink (laughs) indeed. Low
0: blow,
1: but also accurate. I
2: actually don't. I actually like. I love rosé, but Moscato. Oh god, that's so sweet. Is it like a dessert wine? I don't even really know what that is. Not quite. It's
0: it's sweet rosé,
1: basically.
2: I see. I see. Interesting.
0: Okay, uh, I switched to whiskey. Uh, this is a Sagamore Rye that was actually given to me by a, a grad student at Cornell as a thank you. This guy Andres, lovely guy. I may have shouted him out on the podcast before, and I'm slowly making my way through it. Sadly, now there's not very much left because it's really good, and I can't get it up here. Um, so, cheers, everybody! Cheers. cheers. So, before the the break, I, we were I think we were last talking about meaning from suffering, and so here's what I, maybe I'm just, I didn't get it or something. Um, I feel like it's it's a little underspecified in that suffering is a big component of meaningful experiences. So if you think about like climbing Everest, right, if it's easy, it's much less meaningful. At the same time... There's lots of kind of equivalent suffering that you could do, like climb up a bunch of stairs, sleep in the cold in a small tent, etc. It's not meaningful, and it's I I didn't quite come away with a clean way of saying, okay, what's going to make the suffering experience meaningful or not, right? And it, it seems like in the Everest case, almost kind of like, well, let's get to the top of the mountain. It's not really a generalizable thing you could say about experiences writ large, right? So like, what, what are you thinking there?
3: No, it's a, it's, it's a great question. And, and I struggle with, in the book, a characterization of what we mean by meaning or meaningful experience. And I, I'm not trying to do philosophy here. Um, I don't find I a lot of philosophical answers to this question to be kind of terrible. But there's a guy who says, well, what it is to live a life of meaning is just to be alive. And that's not what anybody means by meaning. That's, a, that's not helpful. You know, yeah, It's like a, like, like a hippie professor giving everybody an A. You know, you know, not intend the course thing. That's not... People have a sense. If you ask people about different activities, they'll tell you which ones are meaningful and which ones aren't. If you ask people to living a meaningful life, they'll answer you. And this will reliably correlate with other aspects of life. You ask people about meaningful jobs and the, the answers they give you make sense. The most meaningful jobs are being part of a clergy, being a social worker, being some sort of physician, um, being an educator. And those are difficult jobs involving. So, so con- struggle and anxiety. I think, I think the best, closest thing we could get to a notion of a meaningful pursuit is it has to take some amount of time. It often has a moral or spiritual flavor, but it doesn't have to. So climbing Mount Everest might not. Um, it has to have involve obstacles and a distinct goal. Um, and it has to make a difference. It has to have some sort of impact. The impact could be social, where a lot of people are saying, wow, I can't believe you did that. So this is the sense in which climbing Everest would count as a meaningful goal or Running a charity that feeds poor children be difficult while standing in my office and walking in one million circles wouldn't, even though the one million circles is plenty difficult, takes a long time and involves a lot of suffering. But you say it's not meaningful because what's the point? Does that seem crudely to be? Yeah,
0: yeah, no. I, I, I think that the social aspect there is really interesting. It's like there has to be some community that agrees that what you're doing is important or worthwhile. Like it doesn't have to be everybody, right? Yeah. There's lots of people who can think, oh, that's dumb. Um, like if you really want to perfect a Civil War reenactment, let's say, I think a lot of people <laughs> would say. Okay, dude. But there's a community of Civil War reenactors who's really going to appreciate the effort you put in to making that Civil War reenactment top notch, right? So you're like, you're validated by some community that says this is a goal that's worth worth striving for. And without that aspect, I don't know if you can just make it on your own.
3: That's a great way of putting it. It's better than the way I put it in the book, actually, because I struggle with cases like Andrew Wiley devoting, I think, four or five years of his life to prove for Matt's last there, And this was a very non-social activity. He kind of did it just by himself. He didn't want people to know about it. But it was difficult. It took a long time. It had real value to some community of people, but also was sort of treated by this community as a really tremendous and important goal. So even though he didn't work with his community, um, he had a community, a sort of community, virtual community, applauding it. Same with something like Alex Honnold doing his free climb up El Capitan. You know, he did it by himself, but but there's a community that this is really important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what we do, right? We labor on things that, I, I mean, you know, your work, Paul, aside, but for most of us, we're writing papers that uh, most people could not care less about. And we're doing that for a very small community of people who might read them and like them. And that makes it feel meaningful.
3: I'm going to take a segue to um, and your last episode on academic fraud and, and link this. This is a crazy segue, it, but I'm very pleased with myself, to Dietrich Stoppel. So one of you said he didn't read Dietrich Stoppel's autobiography, where he described his academic fraud. But, but I did. It was translated into English. And he was talking about why he did what he did. And basically he said he was tired of doing work that nobody paid attention to, that nobody thought was valuable, nobody thought was meaningful. And he thought he could leapfrog this and and do work. And sort of the the low level way of thinking about this is he just wanted praise and esteem. But I think the reason why he did his fraud and why people do things like that a lot is they want to be doing meaningful work, work of value. And I know that sounds like a paradox, why you know, why would you cheat? Wouldn't that strip your work of value? But I don't think people see it as a paradox. I do think people see themselves as revealing a deeper truth. That's too much of a segue. Is my Jameson catching up to me?
0: No, I I <laughs> We encourage that. Separate questions. And I, and
1: I like that. <laughs> that that sort of raises for me the question of whether um whether this like sense of meaning is sometimes illusory right so you said like oh the cynical way of viewing his actions is that he's seeking prestige and status and i would agree that that's what he was seeking and i think that he thought that i mean i I don't really i'm not really talking about shtaple specifically but just like this sort of pursuit in general um and that those things were meaningful inherently to him and are meaningful like or or we use those as proxies for meaning in our life pretty frequently. Um, sometimes, and then actually, I think this is a great example uh, when the actual meaning has been stripped from the thing, right? So you just have praise and recognition. Yeah. There's nothing meaningful left in the thing, and we still, um, we're still drawn to that.
0: Yeah, I I like this idea of meaning going awry because I I think that. At first blush, you might say meaning is a good thing. We want to enable people to maximize it, but I, to me, it almost feels like it's morally neutral. Like I think there's plenty of people who derive meaning from furthering goals that are terrible, right? So the, sorry, Paul, you want to jump in here?
3: No, I agree. I I think you guys are making some deep points. Which you know, um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the guy who thought of flow, talks about flow states. But at one point, he says, you know who had a lot of flow? Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution. He, would, he had a big, audacious plan. He worked obsessively on it. He got lost in it. He was totally focused. This, this hit all of the angles. It was a long-term plan of tremendous difficulty, which would have an impact on a lot of people for millions of them killing them. And, and so I think meaning, in a sense, is, is, is amoral. And so the question of how to live a meaningful life, part of my answer is it should include suffering, is separate from my question of how to live a morally good life. And I think we should keep them separate.
2: I mean, the, I think the way psychologists define meaning these days is you know, those things that bring about you know, a sense of purpose, yeah. um, a sense of significance in the world. Um, and also, uh, it makes sense for you and the world. So it's it offers like a coherence in the world. And in fact, I think Alexa, you and I, when we when you were in grad school, we worked on that last part, the coherence aspect. Um, but I think you're right. There's nothing inherently good or bad with that. There's nothing inherently moral or immoral with that. Um, you can have your own. Um, you can ascribe meaning to things, yeah, like like you said, that are that are downright evil. Um, so yes, it, it seems to be value, value neutral. But I want to I want to go back to what you were saying, Alexa, about kind of this 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 illusory quality um, to it, and and I guess I'm struggling a little bit with like whether that should be guiding us, right? Um, so I imagine uh, like let's say a hypothetical example here, like a. An idea would be, you know, someone gives uh, money, just clicks away, you know, and is rich and, and gives like a, a thousand bucks. Um, and, you know, did a lot of good, uh, you know, with a thousand dollars, many meals can be bought, lives can be saved, et cetera. And then you have someone who, um, uh, you know, works, you know, and volunteers in a soup kitchen, um, also does lots of work. Um, and, and also is meaningful, but like, it, it does seem like, it does seem to me like the person who worked in the soup kitchen and maybe helped you know, a handful of people will feel that that is more meaningful work than the person who, let's say, objectively actually helped more and, and did, it did actually contributed more good to the world. Um, so is meaning just like this kind of subjective, almost like egoistic feeling that we have? Like, oh, I'm doing something good. Um, and it's not necessarily reflective of whether you actually are contributing positively or whether you all are building something. Um, yeah, I guess I'm struggling with like, whether that should be guiding us to what we should and shouldn't do.
0: Yeah, just to jump in and add to that, um, and then maybe we can give it to Paul. Uh, there's some great work by Chris Olavola and colleagues showing that people prefer to suffer for charity. And so if you're going to do an activity um, to, uh, to earn some money for charity, you want it to be something that's really painful right? It's not like a uh, sponsor me to lounge on the beach for charity. It's sponsor me to do, do, do it, an unpleasant run. Um, and and that's actually reflected in like people's preferences of what to do, right? They would rather do the unpleasant thing. Um, there's a kind of a martyrdom aspect to that. But I think that this idea of meaning actually explains it pretty well. It just feels like a more meaningful experience if it's unpleasant.
3: That's right. And then there's the flip side. What it's the other side of the same coin, George Newman and Daly and Kane have done some work on what they call tainted altruism. It turns out you take somebody who's doing really good work helping out at a homeless shelter and making people's lives really better, but he's doing it because he kind of likes this girl who works there and maybe trying to like get some close to her and talk to her and everything, and all of a sudden it goes out the window and people say he's a jerk. Even though he doesn't do any. there's nothing bad about his intentions towards the girl, or take a case where somebody's doing wonderful work, but they're making a profit from it. People would re- prefer somebody who does nothing. This is a, the real cases of, of people who raise money for charities. guy, Daniel Pallotta, raised money for charities for AIDS and leukemia, raises an enormous amount of money, took a salary. The amount of money he raised you know, was way more than a salary, so he was definitely doing good. And people, when you ask about him, say, what a jerk. You know who's better? A guy who does nothing like me. And I think I think this is these are perfect cases where a sense of what's meaningful disengages from morality. And this is the thing that Peter Singer and effective altruists talk a lot about, which is we tend to really valorize the person who joins the Peace Corps or does sacrifice does this and, and mock or be disgusted by the head friend manager, who gives $10 million to this cause or that cause. And it's because our moral sense isn't calibrated to results, it's calibrated to judgments of character, and this connects to judgments of meaning. And so I think too much of a focus on meaning for ourselves and for other people could really lead us astray. I'll also say something else, by the way, maybe more more constructive, or just riffing a bit off what Alexa said, which is you could have people in the very same job, and some people love it and some people hate it. I I think there are a few jobs better than being a tenured professor at a really good university. But in the last five years, I've had three friends quit and go off and do it and retire or do do other things. And there's a million ways to characterize what distinguishes this and what distinguishes people who love it versus people who hate it. But I think we get some real purchase if we say some people take meaning in it and some people don't. And it's not hours per day, it's not your salary, it's not even, even fully how much respect and how kind people are. It's that the kind of work we do, it's really easy to have a crisis where you say to yourself, why does this matter? And if you start thinking, why does this matter? You're, you're getting close to wanting to find another means of employment. So either you find meaning in it, you say, Yes, my little studies that only four people read and may not replicate. Still, I'm adding a brick in the wall of science. Or you focus on other aspects of the work, you become an administrator, you become a teacher. And it's actually, I think, a lot easier to find meaning in teaching than in research. Or you um, you know, or you talk to your TIA financial advisor, and then you say, Maybe I will live the rest of my life in Aruba.
0: Yeah. So this is a I mean, what a great counterexample to hedonism, right? Because yes. it is a job where once when, you're seeded up, you can totally coast, right? So you would think, why not just phone it in and uh, cash your checks and then spend your copious free time doing something fun and rewarding. But people want that experience of meaningful work so much that they're willing to give up a very nice steady income in order to go do something else.
3: And it is, it's a nice counterexample to hedonism. People leaving out, you know, a friend of mine once told me, he, he, you know, this was at University of Arizona, and he said, you know, this is a really great job if you don't care what people think about you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the trick, isn't it? Um, well, So this reminds me of you sort of argue against uh, Dan Gilbert in absentia, I guess, as a kind of advocate for hedonism. And it, it struck me that, like, he he can't really believe his own arguments if his arguments really are people just do what's pleasant. Because he works a lot, you know, like, he he's still publishing all the time. And I'm sure even if you're Dan Gilbert, it's a pain and you get rejected and it sucks a lot. So the fact that he's not just coasting, teaching his classes, being in TV commercials and, you know... Uh, lounging by the pool. It just seems like a very powerful counterexample.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Dan Gilbert fan, and we corresponded throughout the book. And even when the book went to bed, he was still writing me long emails saying your whole book is basically mistaken. And sometimes I would kind of get convinced, which is very, very unpleasant feeling. Um but Dan's so Dan's a great friend, somebody I admire a lot. And and you're right, he's sort of um he's in the book. I quote him at length. From unpublished manuscripts where he talks about things with, with his permission, and he gave me a, a, a nice blurb. Let me give you Dan's strongest argument. Dan doesn't think it's the strongest argument, but I think it's Dan's. I think it is the strongest argument, and I think it's right, which is in the end, every, there has to be a common currency. So if I am deciding either to hang out with my good friends and get drunk and have a wonderful time versus my elderly aunt is in the hospital and I should go visit her and spend some time by her bedside, however miserable that is. I have to decide between these two alternatives. The only way to coherently talk about making decisions is you have to give them value in some sort of common currency. You have to say that that hanging out with friends is a plus eight, but seeing my, my old relative who I love and I, maybe I want to have fun, that's a plus nine. And Dan would say that common currency he wants to call happiness and so and if you believe that and you accept the way he calls it all we want is more happiness but some that's some circular, people right yeah. well the common currency argument i think is not i think i think it's substantive calling it happiness i think is is circular but but his point is to some extent um i would argue that deciding whether to to um to eat some pizza or give money to the poor, or um, choose to work on my book are three different things satisfying three different appetites. And I really do think that that's true. But Dan's argument is at the end, because we have to choose between them, they do have to have a common currency.
0: You give this counter example, so I'm not going to pretend I came up with it, but it just doesn't seem to add much to me. If you're like, why did that soldier jump on the hand grenade in order to save his buddies? <laughs> well, he thought he would be happier. You know, it, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't resonate. It, it doesn't add anything to it,
3: to label it that way. So, so this is part of where I'm not arguing against Dan, because Dan's much more sophisticated than that. But, but there's, there's arguing against somebody less sophisticated. You often get into arguments like this. Somebody says, says everybody does something for, ple- does everything they do for pleasure. You say, well, what about you know a guy who gives up his whole life to to care for his dying grandmother? He does it, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, you must like it. And that is, I think, as Alexa said, it's just circular. It's just saying, by definition, I'm gonna say if you do X, you do X for pleasure. And then draw the conclusion, we do everything for pleasure. But to put it another way, if you want to define pleasure so broadly as to include all human pursuits, then hedonism is true, but it is. Entirely empty and uninteresting. I,
2: I want to make sure I understand Dan's argument. Because... Because if I do, isn't it? It's a similar argument to what I was saying before the break. I think, which is, unless I, I don't like the term happiness either. I don't, I don't think that makes sense. I think it makes much more sense to talk about it as value. Yeah. Right. Um, so I've got option A, and option B. Um, option A is will give me two units of utility, two units of two units of value. Option B will give me eight units of value, but also will take five units of effort or five units of pain or suffering. So logically, I definitely should pick option B because you know, uh, net value, it's higher, even though it, it does incorporate some cost, some suffering. Um, so that seems to be a very similar argument to what I was saying earlier, which is like, hey, it's just that the things that are really, really high value sometimes or often entail work or suffering of some kind or
3: another. Um, and that I think I I buy. I, I buy it at some level, but I would push back on it by saying that, I think our meaningful pursuits are a special case of how the pluses and minuses add up. So if, if I say I, I, I really would like some pizza, and that's an eight for me in utils, but I have to walk two miles in the freezing rain to get it, that's a minus five. And maybe I'll do it because it's a three, and that adds up. And a lot of life is like that. A lot of life, you just, you know, you do that math. But for some things, like um, deciding to run a marathon, or having a child, or falling in love, you can't subtract the suffering away from it, because then you lose the experience. The experience itself is is defined in terms of having the suffering. And that, I think, changes the computation a bit.
1: Right. So like in the pizza example, the pizza situation gets better if you remove the minus five, walk in the cold, or whatever. Um, but in, like, a, having kids' situation, um, the experience is, like, ad- either nonsensical or cheapened if you subtract the difficulty.
3: I see what you mean. Yes. Like, so I watched a John Wick movie, to take a of a lower-level example, and it's very upsetting at the beginning when he killed his dog. But you're being foolish to say if somebody says, I have an idea how they could have improved the movie, they could have taken away the scene where they killed this dog. And this guy told us shooting at the end, which everybody loves. Because no, you don't enjoy the shooting unless you have the killing of the dog. I'm assuming everybody has seen John Wick, if, obviously. you you've got to assume a, base, a basic sort of vocabulary when you're talking.
2: Cultural competency. <laughs> <Cultural> competency, <laughs> right. <laughs> I only watch it, like, recently, so I feel I'm just recently competent.
3: Uh. Well, let me summarize. They kill his dog, then he kills them all. <laughs> and it's very sad when they kill his dog. You don't want to see that part. There should, there should be a trigger warning.
0: So, one thing I'm curious about is I, I totally buy that for these experiences, uh, running a race, raising children, that there is some optimal level of difficulty. It, if yeah. It's too easy, you feel like it's not real, right? But then, Where does that, if you will, sweet spot come from? Because I I can imagine that, you know, if you're like, well, do you want the world's most difficult child that, you know, screams through the night for for the first five years? People are like, no, no, I will take an easier child.
3: That's a great question. Because I agree with it. I think there's some things we are just too hard. I think they're too hard. You regret having taken them on. You're miserable. Uh, Usually we have a very high, high cognitive dissonance ability for having kids. but. But in other dimensions, we quit. or We say, I did it, but I regret it. Um, I'll, I'll also note that uh, Alexa is so the one person here who has not yet said the word. The sweet spot. Um, it's, it's just, it's, just it's, 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 it's in the contract, Alexa. But, but I don't, have don't, my integrity. But then, to just, just, whole, just hold off on. It. But, but also, yeah, you're asking a question I never thought to ask, which is, in some way, what I do in my book, based on all sorts of data, is reconstruct what people want. I don't think I've ever, I've I've never done, I don't know if anybody's ever done somebody who's about to have a kid and you ask them, how much do you want of happiness, guilt, grief, anger, shame, disappointment, you know, gratitude, blah, 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 including a bunch of negative emotions. And My bet is that people will actually load up on a negative emotions. People know enough to appreciate this is a full experience and this is a value and so on. It's very interesting how high people would put it there and and whether there's individual differences in this. And one thing I haven't talked about at all in this, I talk about in the book, but I don't have much to say about it, is people are really different. Some people, people, um, their pleasure is full of suffering. It's BDSM on Monday and spicy curries on Tuesday. And then they run a marathon on Wednesday. Other people, not so much. And I met people who have told me, say, I have none of that. I don't, do, I don't like any suffering. I, they're sincere. As well as questions of, you know, there, there are these surveys where you ask people, how much meaning do you have in your life? And some people say, not much, no, but I'm very happy. So I think I'm a motivational pluralist. I think a lot of things going on. But people really are different, and I think they're different in, in in regard to the question that you're asking as to what they're looking forward to.
0: I feel there's there's got to be context where there's sort of an escalation, like a sort of a treadmill, where this felt hard, and now it feels too easy, and I have to like crank it up a notch. Um, yeah. So like BDSM, my maybe completely wrong lay theory is how do you get to the really intense stuff where it's like they're fucking poking skewers into your genitals it's like you start with a little like you know light flogging and then eventually that just doesn't do it anymore and you have to turn it up and after enough years of that you get to the really extreme stuff spicy food maybe i could see going the same way there's other things I think where we, that doesn't yeah. happen. So it's kind of kind of curious to me, like why sometimes it might, sometimes not.
3: I want to add parenthetically. I was on a podcast two days ago, where at the beginning, the guy who I like very much, the said, "I want to remind you, this is a G-rated podcast, so I prefer you not use the word orgasm." <laughs> and so, so now, now we are at the other end of the of the con- continuum, as, as as I see. Yeah, I think I think there is the surrender build build up. And there's a standard sort of just as there's a hedonic treadmill, I guess there's a suffering treadmill as one as well.
2: Paul, feel free to say orgasm like ten times in a row, just to get it out. You know, just just (laughs) just.
3: It's actually the one word I can't say. (laughs) I I I didn't say it before I quoted it.
0: (laughs) Right. So shall we close on Paul's shameful use of the O word, okay. which we'll have to expurgate?
3: Which with, uh, Alexa with still her. has something that she wants to say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's um, not going to do it, man. She. I feel
1: like I feel like you. Refraining from saying orgasm was like the perfect time actually to slip that in. <laughs> <laughs> What's your objection with you know, talking about the sweet spot? But... Oh there we <laughs> go. You did it! There you go. You got it. You got it. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, now we can all go home uh satisfied. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
3: you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I mean this is this is like my my I love this podcast, so it means a lot to be here actually. Thank you guys. Thank you all.